Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government. For those of you who don't know me, I am Joe Owen. I'm Programme Director on the Brexit Programme. We're delighted you've joined us for this very, very timely event on the Irish Protocol. The Irish Protocol, I'm sure you will all remember, was the key part of the withdrawal agreement that the Prime Minister renegotiated. He managed to unite the Conservative Party around a withdrawal agreement and unite the parties in Northern Ireland in opposition to it. The deal removed the UK-wide customs union. It added an exit mechanism in the, center, in the um, shape of the consent mechanism, and it ended the hunt for alternative arrangements. This was going to be the permanent relationship for Northern Ireland and the European Union. But agreeing the deal is clearly not the end of the matter. We still need to implement it, and it is due to come into force at the end of the transition period in just... 10 months time. So to talk about what has been agreed and where we are at with implementation, we have got a fantastic panel. On my far right is Stephen Farry MP, Alliance Party Deputy Leader and MP for North Down. To my right is Dr Anna Joeska, Independent Customs and Trade Advisor. To my left is Dennis Staunton, London Editor of the Irish Times. And then on my far left, Stephen Kelly, the Chief Executive of Manufacturing Northern Ireland. So before we dive into the questions, some housekeeping. Um, we are on the record and the event is being live streamed, as you will have seen from the slight delay at the start. The Twitter hashtag is hashtag IFG Brexit, and you can follow along at the IFG Events Twitter account. If there is a fire alarm, please exit down the stairs and gather outside the King George statue. And in the event of a first aid incident, uh, which doesn't count as anyone coughing, um, please clear the room so our designated first aiders can deal with the situation. So, with that out of the way, we will dive into questions. Stephen Farry, I wanted to start with you. Um, the new Northern Ireland Secretary, Brandon Lewis, said that there will not be a border in the Irish Sea. The Prime Minister has said, and quote emphatically, that goods can move from Great Britain to Northern Ireland unfettered. Does that match your reading of what's in the protocol? Sadly, no. Um, I mean, I mean for, for us, there is no good Brexit, um, but any version of Brexit sadly does entail some sort of border boundary and a degree of friction. Um, we, are, we are changing from the established status quo, which has brought a degree of peace and stability um, to Northern Ireland through that balance of relationships across these islands, particularly the relations between the UK government and the Irish government. Um, parties in Northern Ireland did see, and the business community in particular, um, the, the May version of the deal as a much better, softer landing uh, for uh, Northern Ireland. And in contrast to the debate in the rest of the UK, particularly in Great Britain, between Remain and Leave, which was very polarised, in Northern Ireland there was a degree of pragmatism between trying to stop Brexit through to pragmatic acceptance of, of the May deal. The Johnson deal is a bit more of a harder Brexit uh, for, for Northern Ireland and the parties from different starting positions uh, do have concerns about what that means. Um, there's probably more scope for addressing the, the interface between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, but between Great Britain and Northern Ireland I think we, inevitably we are looking at some degree of, of a challenge. And there is this wishful thinking that uh, a free trade agreement is going to fully eliminate the need for some degree of checks. 
Um, even the most far-reaching agreement you can imagine isn't going to fully address that because qualitatively it's different from a customs union and the single market, so there will still need to be some degree of regulatory checks and rules of origin. And my colleagues in the business world would be far better placed to explain how that's go going to work. So we are looking up to the reality of some degree uh, of an interface, and that is going to have economic challenges and also bring with it a range of political challenges because any new border will create, at the very least, a perception of winners and losers. And in a society such as Northern Ireland, that only works based upon sharing and interdependence. That's a very dangerous place to be. Stephen Kelly, um, the government has told businesses, kind of put them on a footing to say there are going to things will change at the end of the year. You need to get ready for checks. It said this to all British businesses, but for Northern Irish businesses, I mean, is there a sense that they know what this protocol means and what will happen for trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Is there any clarity over what they are preparing for? Uh, well, good afternoon uh, to start. Uh, we, we are ready in, to a degree in that we uh, mourned and had a period of mourning uh, after the referendum result. We had a period of mourning after Theresa May's deal didn't get through Parliament. We've had a period of mourning after Boris renegotiated uh, a new deal and we moved on. Uh, we're ready uh, to a degree in terms of uh, businesses are accepting that we will have some of the benefits that none of the rest of the UK will have. We will have access for our goods to freely circulate within the European single market. That's not available to any other part of the UK. That's a really positive benefit for us. However, that comes with very significant burdens. Those burdens are yet to be properly defined. The government has not come uh, either out publicly or even come to businesses in Northern Ireland and explained how they expect uh, this to work, either on a deal scenario or trade deal scenario or no deal scenario. Uh, and we wait that detail. In many respects, uh, the, the last government was kind of defined like that character from Wallace and Gromit at the front of the train, frantically <coughs> laying down bits of track in an effort to avoid disaster. What we have at the moment is the government's lifting the track. Uh, and, and for us, that's a very dangerous place. Uh, and we, we do seek clarity. We do seek engagement. And at this point in time, we haven't had any of those. So, Anna, you're a customs and trade expert. Just looking at what was agreed in October last year, is there anything we can say definitively about what will be coming into place at the end of this year and will not? Um, yes, so the protocol um, establishes a customs border in the IRC. Um, it's a customs border that runs through the UK's customs territory. So just to begin with, this is not, uh, this is not business as usual. This is not a normal border. Having a border through, through, throughout your own customs territory is, is a bit of a um, bold move. I'm not necessarily sure that this was fully understood by the UK government when they signed the protocol. Um, the default position within the protocol is, is a full customs border, especially now that we're going for an FTA-type um, future relationship. Um, the full customs border includes, on the customs side, includes pre-notification, safety and security declarations, and customs declarations, so full customs formalities, and checks on top of that. In terms of what's clear, and I, I got some pushback for saying that the protocol uh, was vague <coughs> recently, um, I still maintain it's vague because there's, there's certain un unanswered questions both within the protocol, but also when you look at how this protocol would be implemented on the ground in practice. So within the protocol, you've got some unanswered questions 
in a half. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Okay. Um, so yeah, within the protocol, you've got some unanswered questions, such as um, free trade agreements with other countries. Northern Ireland, according to the protocol, may potentially have access to both UK free trade agreements as well as EU free trade agreements. What about quotas? Will Northern Ireland have access to EU quotas and UK quotas? How is that going to work? And then you have Article 5, which talks about what the UK government can do to um, mitigate the impact of tariffs on UK businesses in if, if these tariffs become due. And that is very, very vague and leaves a lot of it to the Joint Committee and to the UK government um, as well. And I think it's also important to point out that it's just, um, it's just tariffs. So everything else, um, standards, other provisions, will apply to Northern Ireland. The only thing that can be negotiated within uh, the Joint Committee is, is the tariffs and, and the impact of tariffs. And within that, um, if you look at Article 5, it talks about UK government being, being able to uh, or potentially having the uh, option to um, compensate businesses for the cost of these tariffs. Now, it, what, what's uncertain here is, for example, whether it's just the, the tariffs, the cost, just the tariffs themselves, or it's also the, the cost of additional admin uh, having to pay your, uh, your customs broker and so on. I've, uh, in the past, I, uh, I asked one of the MPs, I asked Marcus Fish whether this was his understanding that the government will provide compensation for, um, for, for the whole thing, and his understanding was, yes, that's correct. I'm no longer so sure that that's uh, what the government is thinking at the moment. So there's uh, layers and layers of unanswered questions within the protocol. And how many of those unanswered questions fall to just the UK government to decide and to take a decision versus actually they need agreement through the Joint Committee? Because it seems like there's actually quite a lot that is just for the UK government to take a decision on and act as opposed to waiting for negotiation. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I would say that's fair. So the, the Joint Committee needs to decide what kind of exemptions are possible. So the default position is that everything that goes from Great Britain to Northern Ireland uh, is subject to tariffs <coughs> unless the Joint Committee agrees that it's not at risk of going to um, the EU market. So that's something for the Joint Committee. This mechanism is something that the Joint Committee needs to come up with and decide how to, how to uh, implement this. But then there's a lot within Article 5 that the UK government needs to address. Yeah. Dennis, all of the kind of political context here with briefings saying the UK government's not going to implement the Irish protocol, there will be no checks, confusion about what's going to happen. How will this be playing out in Dublin and Brussels, what will their view be of this and how will, it, how will it change the way they approach these conversations that Anna says still need to happen? Well, uh, the European Commission and the Member States are watching very closely and listening very closely to what the British government has been saying. And when they hear what's being said and they watch some of the personnel changes in the government as well, they're alarmed and this alarm is shared in Dublin. And uh, if you look at, what, uh, at the negotiating mandate for the European Union, the fifth paragraph says that the negotiations are premised on the full implementation of the withdrawal agreement and its protocols. And what they hear the British government saying is that they will fulfill their obligations, their legal obligations under the withdrawal agreement, and they acknowledge that that's an international treaty as, and that the protocol is part of it. But then they say there will be no border in the Irish Sea, that there will be no checks, and they also say that uh, they're not 
advising ports to make any preparations or to install any new infrastructure to implement this. And what the European Union needs is for the British government to make a public statement uh, acknowledging and identifying what it believes those legal obligations are and what it's going to do and what plans it's making to uh, fulfil them and to implement them. If it doesn't, and if things continue as they're going now, it will poison the well. And already it's, uh, what's been happening has been deepening a lack of trust that there is uh, on the European side for this government. They're wondering if actually this is a government that signs a treaty in January and tries to tear it up in February. And uh, this obviously has implications not just for the negotiations that are starting in Brussels, but obviously it would have uh, implications for any trade deals that uh, the United Kingdom wants to do elsewhere. But there's another factor where this concern is concerned, because this concerns two things that matter to the European Union. The one thing that it concerns, which is very important, is the integrity of the single market. And if you look at the European Union and the member states, they disagree on everything from their budget to migration to actually what democracy is. But the one thing they all agree on, from Paris to Budapest, is the, uh, the importance of the single market and how they all benefit from it. And they are determined to protect that. The other area, of course, uh, that it raises is if you don't protect the single market according to the way that's been agreed in this protocol by having a border down the Irish Sea, what is the alternative? And the alternative is a border between the north and the south of Ireland. And that, of course, is what uh, we were trying to avoid. I would point out that the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee in the House of Representatives is Congressman Richard Neal, who has been one of the key figures involved in the United States in the Irish peace process over decades. And I would say that there's simply no possibility of any trade deal getting through Congress, as it is currently uh, set up, uh, if there is any doubt about uh, the future of the border in, in the Irish, on the island of Ireland. So talking about um, trade deals, Stephen Farry, I want to come yeah. to you about the um, potential for the future trade deal mm -hmm. with um, the EU to materially change what the, the protocol looks like um, in practice on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, the, former Northern, uh, sorry, the current Northern Ireland Agriculture Minister said the protocol currently is hugely damaging and needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. is, there, is that a widespread view and are there specific asks about what the future relationship could do that would help to um, make it more palatable? Well, in terms of, of the first point, um, the softest Brexit, Brexit possible um, will reduce the degree of the, the checks down, down the Irish Sea. So hypothetically, if we were to stay in the single market and customs union, then we could potentially avoid a, a border. That is off the table to all intents and purposes. So in that sense, even the most far-reaching and imaginative FTA that you could cons consider is still going to have a border. So we have to deal with, it, with this um, re reality. The, the, the uncertainty and the doublespeak that Dennis was, was referring to is now coming across into the Northern Ireland Executive as well, particularly through the DEP, as you, as you have referred to, Joe. And um, there is this sense that um, if Boris Johnson isn't taking it seriously, they don't need to take it seriously. Also, that somehow an FTA is magically going to come along and to avoid this issue um, com coming up. Obviously, the DEP... Um, got themselves into a terrible state in terms of how they played Brexit. Um, Brexit is essentially um, an existential threat 
to, to the wider union. It has destabilised Northern Ireland uh, and, and to, to a, a considerable extent, uh, placing the constitutional question back on the table. And through pursuing a, a hard Brexit, uh, not just a soft version of Brexit, the DEP have contributed to that. So future historians will be scratching their head over a lot of the decision-making that they have made. And the RSC border is a byproduct of that process. Um, and they are struggling to come to terms with it because, in essence, all that's happened is that what would have otherwise been a land border across the island has been pushed back down the Irish Sea instead, and this, this is causing them immense problems. So, DEP ministers are placing an almost singular focus on um, east-west trade at the expense of the wider north-south all-island um, aspect, and they're also, to some extent, <coughs> refusing to proceed with implementing um, the protocol because it may it may disappear. Now, from my perspective, um, I think this is very much in the interest of the business community as well, we have to draw a very sharp distinction between recognising that protocol is there, not just as a backstop, but as a full stop, and seeking to mitigate it as far as we possibly can, as, as Anna has been suggesting, addressing some of the, the opportunities for, for, fle for flexibility, um, as opposed to seeking to evade it. If we evade it, then we're putting ourselves in, in jeopardy because we can't run Northern Ireland to some no man's land where the economic rules are, are broken uh, with a degree of, of impunity. That's not in the interest of our businesses. We're not trying to run some sort of cowboy economy here. We want to be part of the wider global economy, trading on the basis of real quality, as, as Stephen and his um, members would be very much engaged in. So we need to make sure that we, whatever the future holds, it is based upon rules. And if we can be part of the wider European Union to an extent, absolutely, and seek to benefit from other trade deals if we can. But there is a danger that we could be marginalised in both respects as well. So this, this could go either way for us. It's very uncertain. Yeah, I wanted to bring um, Stephen Kelly in on that point. And um, what your, as a business community's big asks for are for the future relationship, and whether you're concerned that actually here in the UK government, in David Frost's task force, they think, oh, we sorted Northern Ireland in the first phase and they're not paying as much attention to the specific asks uh, of Northern Ireland businesses in the next phase. So yeah, I think the, the big challenge here is that many, not just in Westminster, but in Brussels also believe that Northern Ireland's been sorted. Uh, we're far from sorted. We're, uh, we're potentially facing some pretty catastrophic uh, outcomes if we, if we don't get this right. The, the negotiations are split in, or the delivery of Brexit now is split into two separate camps within uh, number 10. There's the David Frost future relationship stuff. Uh, and then there's the Michael Gove implementing the uh, protocol uh, pieces as well. Uh, and for us, our focus is still on that Michael Gove piece of work. So we've said that we require derogations, we require mitigation, compensation, and we also need representation. So the voice of Northern Ireland needs to be heard uh, in those, uh, institute, those bodies feeding into the uh, joint committee. And then all of that needs wrapped up in legislation as well, which has been promised not just in terms of the, the uh, withdrawal agreement, but certainly in the new decade, new arrangement deal, which the UK and Irish government signed up on behalf of uh, the people of Northern Ireland. So we, we, we do know what the plan should be and what it should look like. Uh, the EU have been really clear. Uh, there's no derogation from the rules, but there's flexibility within the rules. So we would like to know, and we would be happy to contribute to a conversation which looks at some of those flexibilities. What are the clauses within particular parts of the Union Custom Code, or whatever the case may be, that deals with SPS checks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we will try our best to try to make Boris's Brexit actually work. Uh, that's where the business community have moved very, very quickly to. Uh, but we need to be engaged with, and there's been, at this stage, there's been no engagement at all. 
Dennis, do you think Ireland will be the UK's friend in these talks then, trying to get a deal that will help minimise the friction between the Irish, uh, in the Irish Sea? If you're talking about the future relationship... In the future relationship, yeah, exactly. Well, certainly uh, Ireland's interest in terms of the future relationship is that it should be as close as possible. But I think Ireland also has heard what the government has said. And it's clear that the government uh, is looking for uh, a model which is based on divergence. And, uh, and so there's a limit to what the Irish government will be able to do. In the, uh, the Irish government has a very limited role in terms of the implementation of the protocol. It's, got a, uh, it's, it's entitled to be represented on the Joint Committee when it's uh, discussing matters to do with the protocol. But, uh, but, uh, but again, as you've heard, the European Union regards the role of the Joint Committee as being pretty limited. It's not a, a forum for renegotiation of any elements of the protocol. It really is just about, uh, you know, about, about making decisions with regard to specifics about implementation. Anna. We've been talking about this. There's clearly lots of unanswered questions, but this thing needs to be ready in 10 months. Um, have you, is there any border around the world that is precedent for what we're trying to do? And as a customs expert, how confident would you be that we will be ready and raring to go by New Year's Eve this year? Uh, the answer to your first question is no, because <laughs> um, countries prefer not to make things complicated for, for themselves if they can avoid it. Um, I think whether or not we're ready, I mean, we're obviously all struggle to be ready. That's, that's I think, uh, obvious to, to, to everyone who, um, who takes interest in this, in this uh, protocol. Um, however, a lot depends on whether we have a trade agreement um, or not. Uh, there's, again, as, as always, there's so many layers to this. You can um, talk about how the agreement will impact that, and also you can talk about business readiness. Uh, the fact is, at the moment, is that, that the businesses turn to their customs brokers or their logistics providers because that's what businesses have been told so far, is get yourself a URI number and find yourself a customs broker or a logistics provider, which is what a lot of them have done. But now they're turning to their customs broker for advice as to how to prepare, and their customs broker is turning to a port operator, and they also don't know how to prepare because there's so many unanswered questions on how it's actually going to work on the ground. So there's, there's that. Is the, getting businesses ready, that's one, one issue, where we, issue where we're going to struggle. And the other one is getting the infrastructure, getting the processes uh, mapped, getting the systems ready and everything else. Um, now that obviously will also take quite a lot of time and even, even if you just look at ports, we, we talked about the fact that they were told not to uh, prepare, not to do anything uh, above and beyond what they're already doing. However, um, if you start having checks and if you start having delays, a port, uh, a port has a certain amount of capacity. If you can't have all the vessels arrive at the same time, so if you, you have a schedule and if you're starting to have delays, optimization of, of kind of port capacity becomes an issue as well. And delays are not only because of checks, but also because of the, the vessel cannot come into the port, be unloaded, and, and so on. So I think there's a lot of things that we that will just kind of impact one another, and, and there will be a bit of a um, of, of a kind of uh, ongoing process there, but uh, there's a lot that the government can do to try to prepare for the end of the year. There's a lot that businesses can do. However, there's a limit to what businesses can do without clear guidance. Thank you very much. So before we get to questions from the floor, I want to do a quick round of questions on the other important part of the, the protocol, which is the consent mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and St Stephen Farage, do you think this is likely to have very long-lasting effects 
on Northern Irish politics, that this, the fact that they could be every four or possibly eight years asked yeah. to choose whether to align with the Republic of Ireland, essentially, or Great Britain. Yeah, it, it, it is a concern, and I think it's worth, worth stressing that I don't think any of the political parties in Northern Ireland were particularly looking to have this responsibility given uh, to the Assembly, because we have an interconnected economy, both north-south and east-west, and almost you're, you're being asked to make a, a choice. And while that choice should be informed by the, the economics, it will be very much overlaid by the politics as well. Now, some people will be able to separate the, these two, but for many people, uh, this will become, become conflated with um, questions around whether there should be a border poll or not, or is this an indication of likelihood of constitutional change? Uh, and uh, again, that, in, a, in a divided society like Northern Ireland, these are discussions that we need to manage very carefully. By all means, have them, uh, but this is potentially a, a difficult um, uh, way of doing it. It's worth stressing as well that um, this is a, a majoritarian decision for the Assembly on a simple majority, whereas most um, controversial decisions are taken on a cross-community basis where we have a formula requiring both unionists and nationalists to agree. Now, in the negotiations, it was self-evident that that wasn't going to be the case, given the way Brexit was very polarising across the Northern Ireland political parties, so they went for this uh, simple majority uh, formula. Both unionist parties are very much opposed to that. Um, the CR party is the, the centre ground, almost having the swing vote as to which way this goes. So we have an enormous responsibility on our heads to get, the, to get this right. Um, but you can say that Brexit itself was the great disruptor. Um, it happened on a, a majoritarian basis over the heads of the people of Northern Ireland. So in that sense, the notion of cross-community consent for change was broken with Brexit itself. So um, insofar as it, this is a, a sin against the, the Good Friday Agreement spirit, it's already compounding what has been um, a, a negative already. So you, you can almost rationalise it in that particular respect. Do you think it was irresponsible of the UK government to put this onto the institutions yeah. in Northern Ireland, particularly yeah. when they weren't even... Yeah, but it, was, it was a quick fix, and I suppose this was a feature of the, the Johnson deal. Whereas the, the May deal was carefully negotiated uh, over a prolonged period of time, and stress tested. People like Stephen and the business community were very heavily involved and consulted, particularly by the by the European Union side. The, the Johnson deal was, was rushed together at the last minute, and people were looking for, for fixes, something to get together over the line, and that maybe seemed at the time the line of least resistance. None of the parties in Northern Ireland were asked if we, if we wanted this responsibility, uh, and most of us were, if not all, were, were very concerned about it. Stephen, what does it mean for business having this uncertainty hanging over every possibly four or eight years that suddenly we're back on the hunt for different arrangements and everything's up in the air? Well, just on the back of Stephen's comments there, uh, the business community in Northern Ireland went to Brussels in October 2018 and said, tell us about your deal, and the deal that they were proposing at that time is largely what's been agreed mm -hmm. now. And we said thanks, but it doesn't work. And there's, this is where it doesn't work. And that's where what led into the arrangements that was agreed between Theresa May's government and uh, Michel Barnier's team at that point. Uh, but late last year, the EU rolled over just as much as the UK government did and did a deal which they know doesn't work. So we do have this mechanism in the middle of this agreement, the consent mechanism, that allows Northern Ireland to choose a different path every four years. Uh, the EU need this to work. If they want Brexit to be renegotiated, reheated and renegotiated every four years, we can make that happen in Northern Ireland. I don't think anybody wants that, uh, which certainly I don't want. I'm 27 years of age. My face looks nearly 50. Uh, I'm nearly 50. Uh, but we, we could have this as a recurring nightmare every four years if this isn't made work right. And that's why... 
Uh, this isn't the EU may be sitting there waiting for number 10 to come forward and say this is how the protocol will be enacted, this is how we propose to make this work. They have a responsibility as well. They have to show as much flexibility as they potentially can give. They need to show as much continued charitability towards Northern Ireland. I don't even know if that's a word. Towards Northern Ireland. Uh, and we need to work this through together because if they don't, this is going to come to a horrible crash at the end of this year or potentially every four years after that. So then very finally, before we go to questions, Dennis, you had some interesting thoughts in there about the political implications. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, not so much the consent mechanism as the protocol itself. The protocol has no constitutional implications. It's explicit in the protocol itself that it has no implications for the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. But it has potentially got political consequences. And I know a lot of unionists are concerned that by uh, pushing Northern Ireland into a, a sort of an economic united Ireland, that it somehow will make a united Ireland more likely. I think the reverse is possibly true in that one of the reasons that uh, there's always been a greater majority in favor of the union than there have been unionists uh, in the past is because of the acquiescence of a lot of nationalists in the status quo. And that's something which I think the protocol, if it, is, if it works effectively uh, by avoiding uh, a harder border between North and South, could uh, encourage to continue. Whereas, conversely, if there were to be a harder border between North and South, that actually would be the sort of thing that could make uh, United Ireland more likely. Thank you very much. So, questions from the floor. We've got some roving microphones. Um, there's one here, and then there's two down the front. So, if we take groups of three. <coughs> um, Vernon Bogdanor, uh, King's College, London. Is it right that there's a tariff border in the Irish Sea? Northern Ireland is leaving the customs union with the rest of the United Kingdom. And therefore, if, for example, we lower our tariffs on cars to, from 10% to 5%, uh, they, they will, that will be paid uh, but if for goods imported into Ireland from the United Kingdom. So the tariff border, there is a hard border on the island of Ireland. The, reg the, the administrative border could well be in the Irish Sea, where, the, where these details are worked out and checked, where goods are going. That could indeed be in the Irish Sea, doesn't matter where it is. But the, the, the principal tariff border is actually on the island of Ireland. Now, the regulatory border is in the Irish Sea, but as has been said, that could be altered too by the Northern Ireland Assembly. So it's possible there could also be a regulatory border on the border of Ireland. And the point about the integrity of the single market isn't quite right either, because Northern Ireland remains in the single market of the EU but nevertheless can restrict immigration. And I think that's the first time, I may be wrong, the EU has accepted that you can be part of the EU single market while restricting freedom of movement. On the question of whether there's a land border, a similar land border, there is between Sweden and Norway. There's a tariff border, but not a regulatory border between those countries. And they tend to regulate things through the Nordic Union, which may be a model for Britain and Ireland in these difficult circumstances. So I think that there, there will certainly be a hard tariff border on the island of Ireland and possibly also a hard okay. regulatory border on the island of Ireland. It's a unionist settlement, which Theresa May's deal was not, but then it's Mr. Varadkar's fault that Theresa May's deal didn't get through. Thank you very much for your thoughts. Uh, we've got a couple of questions down here. Hi, I'm Adam Payne from Business Insider. Uh, this might be more of a question for Stephen Kelly, but of course, if other panellists have got insights, then please contribute. Um, I was told recently that Northern Irish businesses 
um, in anticipation of trade barriers in the Irish Sea, had started inquiring about warehouses in the Republic in order to stockpile goods. Is that something you're aware of uh, that you can shed light on? And also, can you tell us about other um, measures that Northern Irish businesses are taking in preparation for January? Thank you very much. And then just behind. Cheers. Um, George James from the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee in the Commons. I had a question for Dr. Jacheska, if that's okay. Um, I wonder if you could maybe speak a little bit about um, in a situation where the UK was unable to or unwilling to implement to uh, implement the protocol on day one what are the legal consequences of that i know that the withdrawal agreement obviously has uh, mechanisms for arbitration um, procedures um, but i've also heard that those are somewhat unwieldy in your view do those have teeth um, and are there other perhaps uh, international um, uh, international agreements we might be falling foul of if we were unable to meet the obligations of the protocol Okay, so I'll come to you first, Stephen. Yeah, so businesses have been preparing. They've been preparing uh, for no deal in March uh, 2019, no deal in October 2019, uh, and some sort of deal in 2020-2021. Uh, there's very little warehousing space on the island of Ireland available as people have moved things around. We've had members who have customers in the Republic of Ireland uh, come north to remove goods to take them to the other side of the border back in March of last year. Uh, we've equally had Irish businesses moving north and uh, making purchases and uh, taking space. Uh, and actually, in a, in a perverse way, we're kind of shielded from this coronavirus problems because we've so much stuff sitting in stock that we're, we're working through <laughs> that at the moment. Uh, <laughs> so if you need oranges or anything, just let us know. We've got loads, loads to spare. But, uh, so businesses are... I think businesses in Northern Ireland are probably better prepared than businesses in the rest of the UK are. I know colleagues in Make UK, uh, the National UK Manufacturing Association, have been doing some research about that. It's probably going to be published later uh, this month. And I think our businesses are, because we're, we're more acutely aware of the impact that a border would have been on the island of Ireland, they've got themselves organised well ahead uh, in advance. There's been some purchases, so Irish businesses have purchased a uh, huge uh, investments in Northern Ireland, uh, partnerships and agreements between firms north and south, and equally there's been some businesses in Northern Ireland who have established uh, premises and, and uh, economic entities in the Republic of Ireland as well. Uh, so there's been a lot of, lot of movement going on. Uh, that, that will continue through 2021. Uh, the one thing though which is clear in what we're saying to members is that this is a legal agreement that the UK has signed with the EU. Your goods will be able to freely circulate within the single market come uh, the 1st of January 2021. The challenge that we have is that, uh, counter to natural law in this part of the world, everything that will travel from GB into Northern Ireland will be viewed as guilty rather than innocent. Uh, and what we need to do is work with the EU and the UK government to get as much of those goods into the innocent category uh, as quickly as possible before they even arrive at ports in GB, arriving into Northern Ireland. Anna, there's a couple of questions yep. there, one on non-delivery and then also yep. where does tariffs. the kind of tariff border yeah. sit? On the tariff uh, point, on the hard border versus um, in the Irish Sea versus the, uh, island, um, um, the island of Ireland, I see what you're saying there with, with the fact that because there's this exemption, potentially there's this um, um, issue about goods not being at risk, not being subject to EU tariffs. You can look at that as a sort of watering down of the, 
of the provision and, and, and consider that there's an, in fact a tariff border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Uh, however, again, this is not the default position. The default position is there's a tariff border in the Irish Sea and it's only the goods that are by some sort of mechanism um, exempt that do not pay the tariffs. But if you look at the wording, everything that goes from GB to Northern Ireland is subject to EU tariffs unless the Joint Committee decides it's not. That's just written down here. Uh, it's a question of where it goes to. But the if it's staying in Northern Ireland, obviously yeah. there is no tariff. Not if it's going into the Republic, it will pay the tariff because the tariff difference. I think the, the point is in the, the protocol, if everything is considered at risk and therefore everything pays a tariff. The default position is there is a tariff. But if it's paid back, if it stays in Northern Ireland. Yes. So therefore, there's no potentially, between, yes. Between the mainland and Northern Ireland. Potentially, but it's not. Again, in the, the wording of the text, if you look at Article Five, the wording of the text isn't clear. Yes, the UK government has an option to pay back, but it's not written in the text. Yes, the government will pay you back. But Northern Ireland's leading the customs. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, I, I, so would I add just also just really like I, I I think I understand the theological point you're making, yeah. but I do think that, <laughs> I, I do think though that in terms of you know, the practical impact of a border and where it is, it's where the checks are. It's where those processes happen, and they will be happening in the Irish Sea. Well, and so, Professor Bogdaner, I'll happily take 80% of your income this month, and I promise to give it back to you in six weeks' time, <laughs> and, and hopefully that you're able to, to operate through, uh, through your life in the next six weeks. That's the reality for businesses, even if they're having to pay this tariff up front, they may get it back. But rather than, yeah. given that the administrative point is that it needs yes. to be ready in 10 months, yes. yeah. and I just very quickly, yeah. before I bring you, Stephen, sure. in, what happens if we're not ready? Um, should I skip the Nor uh, Norway-Sweden one? Yes, go for it. What <laughs> happens if we're not ready? Um, sorry, I'm not a lawyer. I cannot give you an answer on the legal kind of side of things. Um, we had this conversation before the agreement was signed. What happens if there's no deal and neither side puts up borders or checks or infrastructure? This kind of what if, who's going to um, respond to what's going to happen, who can, is, is there any authority that can enforce that? Uh, at that time, uh, obviously, we, uh, we were discussing the most favored nation principle, the fact that other countries that have a border with the EU uh, can potentially complain. It's also not good practice for a country to have a customs border and have no idea what's going through it. Uh, now it's a bit of a different situation because we have a legally binding text and I think this point of UK sending a signal, UK that wants to champion free trade, wants to be a global Britain, how is it, what kind of signal are we sending if the first thing that we do is go back on something we've signed as a legal text? I think that's more of a reputational issue rather than a legal one, at least for me. I'm sure there's a legal issue there as well, but, but I think reputation will hurt us even more. And just to pick that up, obviously there'll be no European FTA or US FTA, as has been said already. But I wanted to pick up the point around the, the single market, which is the other point of the, of the question from the professor. Um, it's only the issue of goods that applies to Northern Ireland. So what is otherwise the indivisibility of the four fundamental freedoms around um, goods, capital, services and, and, and freedom of movement to labour has been broken on a pragmatic basis because the, the negotiating brief of the European Union was to avoid a border on the, on the island of Ireland at all costs. So the only way they could do that was by carving out that exemption in terms of goods. However, that in itself causes a certain problem for us in Northern Ireland because 
Uh, we're not simply a goods-based economy, as, as much as I admire Stephen, but um, we have a large service economy as well. Uh, obviously, services are often bundled together with goods. We also have already a, an advanced integrated all-end economy, people like uh, solicitors, accountants that are working on a north-south basis. All of that is now placed into a degree of uncertainty. So, as well as how we work out the, the protocol and the future relationship, we also need to revisit the all island economy and what happens in terms of services and the freedom of movement of labour. Because, again, yes, we are, we are now going to be beholden to UK immigration policy, and Stephen will recommend that in a moment as well from the point of view of the impact on, on, on the economy. But that is something where Northern Ireland would quite like to have a degree of flexibility. To, to address the particular circumstances, and it's one area where, at the very least, all of the main parties in Northern Ireland are now in agreement on that flexibility. Great. More questions. So there's one at the front, Tim, and then one just behind the door. Hi. A question for anybody who can answer this, just um, if anybody <coughs> who can shed any light or any thoughts on how you think this list of um, at-risk goods will emerge, how long will it be? We know um, tariff schedules run to tens and hundreds of pages. Is that what we're looking at in the Northern Ireland Protocol? Great, and then just at the door, if you could just let us know who you are when you ask the question. Uh, no, don't worry. Thank you, Carol Walker. Just picking up on that point, if, if there isn't uh, a deal, and um, full respect to Dr. Jezeska for the, the point about the reputation uh, of the British government, but surely the British government under those circumstances would be far more worried about the consequences of imposing additional checks either in the Irish Sea or uh, within the island of Ireland. And, and I just wonder how much, under those circumstances, the Irish government would then come under pressure from the rest of the EU to in introduce some sort of checks maybe within the, the, the border uh, of Ireland um, in order to protect the single market. Hello, Stuart Stoner. I'm the clerk of the House of Lords European Union Select Committee. Just very quickly, a plug for our committee. We're doing an inquiry on the protocol at the moment, and the committee was in Belfast last Tuesday and took evidence from business um, academics, and we met uh, members of the Assembly. Um, and as uh, Internal Market Subcommittee is doing an inquiry into state aid and level playing field provisions across the whole of the piece. Um, with that in mind, I had a question about state aid and what the panel's understanding is of the implications of the state aid provisions, one, for businesses in Northern Ireland, where perhaps it's quite clear, but number two, for businesses in Great Britain with a presence in Northern Ireland. Okay, so who wants to start? Can I, can I just maybe kick off yeah. and take some of those together, I suppose? Uh, if the UK refuses to implement the protocol, that provides massive legal chaos in Northern Ireland. That legal chaos then infects, for want of a phrase, UK-wide businesses who are trading in Northern Ireland. So take our supermarkets, for instance. Those supermarkets also depend upon uh, legal certainty for some of the systems and processes they use in order to serve the rest of the UK. So uh, AEO status for uh, those supermarkets are bringing goods in from continental Europe or across the globe. Uh, all of a sudden, if they uh, are caught uh, in this legal chaos in Northern Ireland, that impacts directly upon uh, the confidence that the market has in their ability uh, to operate things like AAO status. So this has a massive implication, not just for Northern Ireland, 
massive implication for UK's the UK's trading ability uh, as well. In terms of the, the state aid, we are clear we are subject to the UK's or the EU's state aid rules, but we have very many businesses in Northern Ireland that operate in the rest of the UK as well. So all of a sudden, both directions are being pulled in opposite direction, and, and that leaves a massive dilemma for the UK government by either agreeing to or refusing to implement the protocol. If I could just say an answer to Carol's question about the, the north-south border. If we're talking about the non-implementation of the protocol, we're talking about a no-deal Brexit in the old-fashioned sense. And before, when that was a discussion, uh, Leo Varadkar did actually make clear, under pressure from the uh, European Union, that the Irish government would, if necessary, uh, protect the single market by uh, doing what was necessary on the border. I think it's also true that there's no question about which government the people who live along the border would hold responsible for anything that happened like that. Mm -hmm. Anna, do you want to answer this question about how long until we get a sense of what at risk yeah. means and will we ever get a sense of that? Yeah, so I've, I've um, written a piece on that because for me it's an interesting concept just from a purely political perspective. We've never had anything like that. We have rules of origin that determine where the good was made, but we don't have anything that determines any system that determines where the goods will end up, uh, per se. So um, I think there will, has to, there will have to be a, a mechanism um, that doesn't look at it tariff by tariff. It's either going to have to be on, uh, some research is going to have to be done and, and look at um, the percentage of goods that moves from north to south and uh, be decided kind of on a high level uh, per heading, so the first four digits rather than the whole tariff line. Um, some sort of aggregated mechanism for that, or it has to be done in a way that other custom simplifications such as inward processing are done, whereby a company um, takes risk or, or pays a guarantee, brings the goods in, and then it's up to the company to provide evidence and documents to the customs authority to demonstrate that the good was consumed or stayed in Northern Ireland and then they get the refund, which obviously is one way of doing things that gives uh, the, uh, the government quite a lot of visibility and, and ability to trace where the goods are, but it's a, a large uh, burden for the companies. Doing that, the, the amount of additional paperwork, the amount of additional um, IT systems, um, uh, tracking internally, that's going to be uh, quite, a, quite a big impact on the company. So there will be a balance between doing it in a way that's easy for businesses to comply with and doing it in a way that it makes it easy for the government to track goods. And we'll have to find that balance uh, somewhere. Just very quickly on state aid, uh, I think that's a very good point because Article 5 is limited by state aid provisions. So all that liberty that the UK government potentially has to um, be flexible around how it uh, reimburses um, tariffs and so on will be limited by state or provision. So, again, many questions there. I just want to make one point, just building on, on Dennis's answer to Carol around what happens in the event of a, of a default and the response of the Irish government. Um, what may have happened under Fine Gael um, in the past may not be as applicable today um, with post the Irish election result. Uh, where you have three parties that are almost in balance and they're, they're going to struggle to form, form a government. And in particular, you've seen the rise of Sinn Féin, which isn't a, a response to Brexit per se, but nonetheless, because of, of their 
position on Brexit and wider uh, ideology that are in a position of greater strength in, in, in the Doyle and potentially part of a government. In that context, it will make it much more difficult for the Irish government, I think, to follow through, um, particularly if Sinn Féin are in that government, around actually responding. So that creates a new challenge in terms of um, a standoff emerging potentially um, in, in Ireland over the integrity of the single market in that scenario, if that was to unfold. Any more questions? So there's one here, one from hands going up now, and then one right at the back. Well, my, mine is a very quick one, Stephen Parry, um, John Pete from The Economist. Um, <laughs> talking about the representation of Northern Irish interests in this subject, I wonder what you feel about the fact that Hilary Benn's committee for, on monitoring the mm -hmm. UK-EU relations has no representative from Northern Ireland. Well, um, we, we would like to have a, a say across the board, and obviously the, the Northern Ireland particular circumstances are, 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 are thus, and um, we're, that, that's, that's different from other parts of the UK. Um, the, the way Parliament runs, most of, of the select committees are, are based around the three largest parties, um, Conservatives, Labour and, and SNP. None of the other parties have any auto, automatic right to be part of committees. So, um, we, we worked with um, DP, SDLP and ourselves with the, the other parties through the usual channels to try to get places on the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. In the past, the DEP have managed to get places on some of the other select committees, but that hasn't materialised, as far as I know, uh, this, this time around. We will find other means of addressing that issue. Um, the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee uh, had its first meeting this morning. I'm on that, and, uh, as are some of the other parties. And um, I think the integrators read that that committee will have a, a taken a very strong interest on the protocol uh, with a very specific focus, as opposed to the more general focus of the uh, future relationship committee. Great. A question. Yeah, we've spoken very much about readiness at the end of the year and a bit about what happens in four years' time when the consent mechanism works in. But I'm going to talk about how the uh, mechanism operates in the interim, because Northern Ireland obviously is required to keep in line with evolving EU law and the directives that, and regulations that are subject uh, covered in the protocol. And I just wonder whether people, particularly from Northern Ireland, thought that this was going to be a real problem if you have, for example, a unionist minister running one of the departments like DARA or something, actually looking at that and saying, I don't want to implement that bit of new EU legislation because I don't think that works for Northern Ireland. It keeps us closer to the Republic and takes us further away from GB. And then there's a question right at the back, Hayden. Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, Chris Wimpress from World at One on Radio 4. Um, I have had the privilege of going to the Norway-Sweden border and its various crossings. And I can tell you there's a sizable amount of infrastructure, even on the smartest of those crossings, even the ones where they've introduced maximum facilitation. The programme for that was tens of millions of kroner over budget. It took a lot longer than initially envisaged. And I would venture that we are in no way going to get to anything like that by December the 31st in this country, are we? Was there another one more question, Tim? Yep. Carson McMullen, a Northern Ireland representative of the British International Freight Association. It's not going to happen. <laughs> we need to know how, where and when, and really, really quickly. Even uh, One thing is not clear. Are all easements that we were relying on, such as TSP, no checks from the Republic to the north of Ireland, are they all gone, postponed accounting and stuff? We thought, oh, we're half sorted. But now, from um, the meeting in Palmyra at the beginning of the month, it seems that all that has gone. Uh, 
Um, also, IT systems. Any software house will take a year to 18 months to put anything in place. And it seems to me that even HMRC are starting from a blank sheet as of two or three weeks ago. How's that going to work? And finally, um, the oh, training. Uh, we have a limited amount of training in Northern Ireland, but in BIFA, we are the go-to people for customs clearance. And that isn't going to happen quickly. We just don't have the people in the offices knowing what to do. And throw into that the end of it all, customs are moving away from cheap and going on to CDS, which is anybody's guess how that's working out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's what I have to say. And I, I despair for you, see, Stephen, and, and you're the people you represent. It's very difficult. Thank you very much. Stephen, I want to come to you on the point on that Jill's. Jill made. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, we, yes, I mean, um, Jill, you're seeing that in practice already, uh, particularly uh, through statements from Edwin Poots. Um, Dan Dodds, who uh, runs the Department for Economy, is in a similar position, and uh, Arlene Foster, as First Minister, also issued a statement last week where she was thinking that she could obviate the, the protocol so it could be wished away. Um, none of those politicians is giving a clear, unambiguous uh, sense that they understand they have an obligation to implement the protocol, uh, both in terms of facilitating checks down the RSC as pertains particularly around um, ag agri-food or updating any change in, in regulation that may come through. Um, so there is the potential for a, a standoff in, in Northern Ireland and as people will appreciate, um, devolution is only just being restored in, in the past um, six seven weeks and um, it is very fragile uh, and Brexit really is a major fault line right through the heart um, of, of, of Northern Ireland, because Brexit is more than simply an economic issue, and we will talk about the practicalities, but fundamentally it cuts across issues around identity in a divided society, and that's where it's so difficult. So unionism is struggling to come to terms with what they have to do on something they vehemently oppose, and it's going to be really difficult for them. So very finally then to finish, we'll go down the panel. We've heard some scepticism about whether or not this is going to be in place, so uh, to take panellists' final view on um, is this going to all be in place by the end of the year and what are the big risks remaining? So I'll start with you, Stephen. Uh, it can be delivered by the end of the year, but only if there's significant flexibility shown uh, by the UK side and significant commitment shown by the UK side uh, to implement uh, the protocol. Uh, business will find a way to trade wherever it wants to trade and, and when it comes to this scenario, if there are to be frictions in the Irish Sea, then just like water, Irish, Northern Irish businesses will find a route through the least uh, friction uh, and it will trade uh, more in terms of the EU single market uh, where we have the ability to do so. Uh, but we have ideas. Uh, we need uh, to get away from this red line drawing and into proper conversations about what's possible and what's not possible. Uh, and we need both sides, both the UK and the EU, to be honest and serious about uh, the conversations that are required to implement this protocol. Thank you. Dennis? The EU have been very clear that there are lots of ways of mitigating and, in other words, de-dramatising uh, the implementation of the protocol. But for that, those conversations to begin, the British government must very quickly be very clear about and very explicit about how it's underst it understands its obligations and what it is planning to do to ensure that it fulfils them. 
I think in terms of readiness for the end of the year, you mentioned some really, really good points there in terms of what needs to happen um, internally. Um, you've got the HMRC systems, you've got chief that's in place, you've got CDS, but you also have companies uh, having to prepare internally with their own ERP systems if they don't have it. You mentioned training. Um, that's another question. If you're a logistics provider, where do you go to train how to complete a customs declaration? I think one of your members mentioned this uh, last week on the, during the Tuesday's um, select committee. And it was a fantastic committee with really, really good exactly. So, so these are all um, issues that need to be dealt with. So I think the government or, or the, the, the the framework is going to be decided at the last minute. We've seen that happen before. And I think we will need time for businesses to be able to read what's been decided, what's been agreed, and prepare for it. And if we, if we decide whatever it is that we're going to end up with um, on the last day of, of the transition period and we implement it the next day, that's not a good way to do it. There's no chance. Even if the agreement is good, it won't work just because no one will have time to prepare. I, I tend to concur with Anna. This will, will happen, but it will be last minute. We will see gains from the government throughout most of the year, but ultimately because they need an FTA with the European Union, they will have to face reality, uh, and reality will, will dawn when it's too late to do all the practical preparations. So come the 1st of January, sadly, Stephen's going to be a complete and utter mess. Great. <laughs> <laughs> So if you like what you heard here, we have got uh, an Institute for Government paper forthcoming on the topic of implementing the Irish Protocol. There is a couple of weeks break before our next IFG Brexit event, but all that's left to do now is to thank you for coming and also thank the excellent panel.